0: thanks to our good friends at TI Coastal Services of Wilmington, North Carolina. We are happy to bring you continued coverage from the Florida Shore and Beach Preservation Association meeting and in a couple of shows specific focus on harmful algal blooms. We've got great content. Check it out. There's three special guests on the topic and thanks to our friends at TI Coastal Services. Hello, everybody. And guess what? We're back at the Florida Shore and Beach Preservation Association meeting in Hutchinson Island, Florida. And it has been a great conference. We're on day two. And uh, I've been able to corral, I think, one of the best guests of the conference and certainly one of the most important topics that we've heard about. And that is harmful algal blooms. Welcoming uh, to the American Shoreline Podcast, James Sullivan, Executive Director of the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute, and that is part of Florida Atlantic University. Good football team these days. And uh, (laughs) uh, Dr, Dr. Sullivan, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, it's, uh, you know, we're here. This conference is typically pretty focused on engineering and beach restoration and shoreline management. And uh, it's great to see the scientists getting some stage time here. Uh, tell us what your expertise is and uh, what, tell us, introduce our audience uh, to, to who you are and, and to Harbor Branch.
1: So I'm currently the executive director of Harbor Branch. Uh, Before I got to that position, though, I was a practicing uh, research professor, um, both at the University of Rhode Island. I worked for wet labs and Seabird Scientific and eventually got to Florida Atlantic University. My specialization is phytoplankton or algae uh, ecology and physiology and with specializations in harmful algal blooms and their dynamics. Well, it is a big
0: topic, not just in Florida, but uh, I had the pleasure of listening to your talk and around the United States. I liked uh, your introduction. Uh, you said this is not the most uh, popular topic, not the most. It's a little gloomy, and in fact, you said that your wife had given you a nickname that I really loved. What does what she? What does she call you now?
1: <laughs> I am Doctor Doom of the Algae Bloom. <laughs> oh, well, Marvel Comics <laughs> may want to trademark that. Well, you know, I mean, it,
0: it, it, we we make light of it, but but it truly is a topic that. Um, uh, has serious and significant consequences for both uh, the economy, the environment, and what I found astonishing was the risk to human health. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're talking about marine and freshwater uh, single cell algaes. Uh, And I'd like you to start with the basics. Tell our audience what these things are and uh, give us an intro.
1: So, Um, Harmful algal blooms, it has the the term algae in it, algal, Um, algae are what we call phytoplankton. That would be the more scientific term, but the most simple way to think about algae is that they are plants. They are simple microscopic plants. Thus, they really just like your common houseplant, a food crop, your lawn, they only need three things really to exist and grow and that is optimal light, optimal temperature, and optimal nutrients. The way those three environmental factors work is, in general, algae and the algae that cause harmful algal blooms will grow faster if they're under higher light. So we're in the sunshine state. We have lots of light here. Right. Uh, so that's why it seems like algal blooms really like Florida. Um, optimal temperature, and for that, most algae like warmer temperatures. So... The warmer it is, the faster they can grow. So the faster they can grow, the quicker they can make a bloom, and it can become a harmful algal bloom.
0: And when you're talking about temperature here, we're talking principally about water temperature because these are obviously uh, aquatic.
1: Right. So, uh, right, they live in the aquatic environment. So, as the water temperature rises, in most cases, uh, the species of algae that cause harmful algal blooms will grow faster. Okay. Um, And you can think with global warming and climate change, this of course could be a problem. Uh, Right. So. Um, and most scientists agree that there's a, a feedback loop there. As the oceans warm, we're probably going to see more and more of these algal blooms. The final thing is optimal nutrients. Uh, like any plant, they need nitrogen and phosphorus. Uh, just like you fertilize crops or fertilize your lawn, if you fertilize them, they will you'll grow more of it, and they could potentially grow faster. So. Um, As we tend to uh, get a lot of runoff into our watersheds and we get nutrients um, from agricultural practices, from leaky septic systems, uh, from residential people fertilizing their lawn, you name it. There's many, many different ways nutrients get into the ecosystem. Uh, They get washed into the watershed, they get into our freshwater lakes, and they get into our coastal oceans and ocean proper And at that point, we have essentially fertilized the crop of harmful algal blooms. Wow. You know it's
0: it's interesting. These are teeny tiny little things, generally
1: single cell, right? All the time. Almost all of them are single cell. Some, some colonial they, ver- variations, they will make they'll make aggregates or, or colonies, but they truly act as single cells.
0: So it's a plant and like uh, like you're saying this is a water this is a marine plant. And, and people are familiar with, you know, plants with roots and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And what uh, we're talking here about things that float in the water, this isn't seagrass. And uh, they're teeny tiny, but they, uh, when they bloom, as you describe it, massive numbers of these things that can change the, the water column tremendously, create surface layers of algae. I mean, what happens when there's a bloom and how can these tiny things add up to be such a big deal?
1: Well, as I said, if we fertilize them, you can get literally millions of cells per milliliter of water. Okay. It's a tiny tiny amount of water. Let's,
0: let's just Okay, <laughs> a milliliter of water. If you have an eyedropper, right? Is that a typically you take a drop out of it's an eyedropper. It's a eye drop dro- of water. It's a drop of water. So you can have a million, millions of Right. These. So you'll have billions upon billions of cells in a bloom. Wow. You know, that's astonishing. So the density of that and what hap- I mean, tell us about uh, obviously you educate our audience a little bit here these things are not benign uh and their presence their physical presence has an effect but also their toxicity and i've never really understood the toxicity part of this
1: so um as i discussed in my talk these even though these are single cell we think about them as single uh, simple plants they have a lot of really specialized adaptations and they've been on the earth Far longer than human beings or mammals or most of the life that's on land right now. We're talking billions of years. Over that time, they have, may have these adaptations to survive. One of them is that they can actually swim. A number of harmful algae, especially things in the, the dinoflagellate realm, as we call them, uh, have flagella and they can actively swim and swim fairly fast. And that swimming ability allows them to come to the surface. So that's when we see these big slicks on the surface of the water that truly discolor the water. So one of the nicknames for a harmful algal bloom back in the old days was a red tide, meaning that the water turns red. It looks like blood. And that's because of the pigment that's, that's in the algae that it needs to absorb light because they, they're plants photosynthesis. Um, but when they when they come to the surface, they make that incredible aggregate, and then you know well, there's a harmful algal bloom there. They're not just red. We don't really use the term red tide that much anymore because, there are so many different types of algae now that create harmful algal blooms that that's not a good descriptor anymore. There's okay. green tide, brown tide, red tide. Uh,
0: but green. from a scientist standpoint, the community of these organisms, how large is this? How many? Are there are thousands of species of this? How many? Or, or, or Let's just say in Florida, what's the size of the community?
1: Uh, the community of algae that can potentially cause harmful algal blooms. Yeah. The number of species is... Pr- it's definitely above 60, and it's probably closer to 100 different species wow. representing uh, a number of different toxins. Every species can make a totally different toxin uh, okay. that has different effects on a human or an animal in the environment.
0: All right. Now, this is really one of the questions I have, and this is kind of the evolutionary question. What— was the purpose of the i mean and i asked this sort of in the creator mindset (laughs) if you're if you're creating the world on day four i don't know plants were probably two or three i mean i just wonder what the thought process was that went into creating this particular creature (laughs) uh you know what was the purpose what do we need that for i mean if you've got that but in seriousness what why why are they toxic toxin producing what is that well, for? Well, the first
1: thing I'll say before I say why they make toxin is that I don't want to give all phytoplankton a bad name. Phytoplankton right. are the base of the food chain, okay? So if we didn't have phytoplankton, we wouldn't exist. They also, because they're plants, they produce oxygen. Remember the simple yeah. photosynthesis from high school? Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around, the the phytoplankton that are in the ocean makes somewhere between 50 and 80% of the oxygen you're currently breathing. Right. (laughs) So this is a big deal. We do not want to get rid of all the phytoplankton. Right. Now, as far as why they make toxins, there's actually uh, a number of different reasons. Some of the toxins they make do what's called alleliopathy, which is a fancy way of saying chemical warfare. So they actually use Um, these to fight and get rid of other algae that are competitors for nutrients or their environmental space Wow! so they can make specific toxic chemicals that will kill other species of phytoplankton now they also make toxins that affect their predators so mostly what eats uh, phytoplankton in uh, the marine and, and lake environments are what we call zooplankton these are little crustaceans, think about them like little crabs or lobsters, teeny tiny teeny tiny crustaceans, copepods exactly, little, yeah. that's, that's exactly what it is um, and these toxins can actually affect copepods and these other zooplankton in a number of different ways. It can make them sluggish. It can slow them down, their metabolism, so that their predators, small fish, can eat them. So the thing that eats the algae is getting eat, eating, eaten by their predators easily. Right. It can suppress their reproductive potential, so you, they can't be as many wow. zooplankton. Some badass plants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I mean, they essentially do this, again, it's like chemical warfare against their own predators. Now, some toxins are not meant for any enviro- You know, any kind of competitive advantage. It's part of their natural bio- bio- biochemical cycle. Huh. So um, domoic acid is a, a pretty dangerous neurotoxin that's made by a diatom called pseudonychia. And it's actually um, a metabolic chemical that's used to scavenge iron from the environment. Oh, okay. So plants, I mean, diatoms, denoflagellates, algae, whatever we're going to call them, uh, again, they need micronutrients and major nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, but they also need iron. That's a, a required micronutrient. Okay. So getting iron in the environment, a lot of algae have specialized adaptations to more effectively get iron.
0: So this farm. is uh, their waste product essentially in their process of energy production yeah, and living? Right, exactly. It's, 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 it's used their for version them. of a sewage outfall. Right,
1: and it just happens to be toxic to a number
0: of animals and humans. Well, you know, I just think this is so fascinating is that because it's, it flies in the face of what we understand to be plant life. Mm-hmm. These are photosynthetic organisms, and here they are. They can swim and move. They have, a, as you said, a flagella. For those of you out there, it's like a tail of a fish, but it's a whip. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a, and they can, they can move around. They can swim and decide to go to certain places up or down in the water column typically. phytoplankton
1: can sense light. They can sense nutrients in the water um they, they can migrate to that they go they do what's called diurnal vert- vertical migration many of them which means they come up during the day to get light which they need and at nighttime they swim back down deeper in the water to find nutrients Stunning. And they do this day after day um, they can also send they have geotaxis in other words they know which way is up they can sense up and down so they're not just swimming around randomly without a cue of, of light they can start heading up wow. before the sun comes up because they know which direction to go. A single so, cell. I mean, it
0: really is an amazing creature. Critter, I don't know. Evolution. <laughs> and uh and, and and they have this they have and they have this defense mechanism involved. You you mentioned that there are species that can produce uh, gas bubbles in there inside the cell in order to control their buoyancy i mean this if is they really... can't
1: actively swim yep, many diatoms being one of them they don't have flagella but they actually regulate their cell buoyancy so they can float up to the surface during okay. the day and then decrease their buoyancy and, and go back down at night or hold their position in the water column Dinoflagellates—the ones that can swim—a number of those are also bioluminescent. So yeah. when you see the water glow or the waves glow at night, many times that's one of these single-cell algae producing light and when small it's plant. disturbed. Wow. And again, it's—we think—bioluminescence is produced as a defense mechanism that flash of light startles the predator that's trying to eat them. Man, I just think it, it, it must be
0: fascinating to, uh, to, to study this uh, mm-hmm. thing. And we, uh, I agree with you, we don't want to paint a broad picture here about what the uh, characteristics of this are in a negative way. Because when they're in balance in the population is in balance naturally, uh, they're quite benign, harmless, unnoticeable really to humans or most animals. Uh, But occasionally what's happening, it seems, uh, that your research is starting to show, we're tipping the balance in in the environment around us in a way that these guys – really like and when they when they get out of balance in the population explosion there's a lot of negative impacts is that sort of what you guys are seeing
1: yeah and this has been going on for for decades this is this is not any new thing it's just seemed to it's it's starting to hit a critical point now i think we have hit that tipping point the number one reason we're seeing probably the increase of harmful algal blooms worldwide not just a problem in florida is eutrophication or simply nutrient pollution. Um, humans produce a lot of nutrients, and these nutrients get into the watershed. So again, we're fertilizing the ocean, so to speak. Right. The second is uh, humans are, well, hopefully you believe this, are responsible for climate change and global warming. So as the water warms, again, they can these algae can now grow faster. And it seems like in some way, these conditions we're creating on the earth are selecting um for these harmful species to essentially take over the environment. Wow. Isn't that interesting?
0: Because blue green algae, one of the original uh, life forms on the planet, right? One of the oldest. One of,
1: one of the oldest.
0: And uh, the and here we are, and they're just happy uh, billions of years We've later. We've made a better earth for them. Yes, we have. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the issue of nutrient sources gets debated a lot in Florida. Is it Okeechobee? Is it uplands, fertilizer, agriculture, septic tanks, wastewater, all of this – Here's my sum total of that. It's us. Yeah. There's different versions of us that somehow get this stuff into the water. But this is a human thing. There's seven and a half billion of us. There's a, millions and millions of people in Florida. We're right next to the water. And uh, somehow, uh, in the effort to grow these wonderful landscapes that Florida is so well known for, which are uh, fairly uh, you know, artificially created, uh, putting all of this stuff on the ground, producing the waste that we produce, doing the best we can to treat it, sort of, kind of. Uh, that's it. Uh, it's important that we decide what factor is in which place, but overall, the answer is us, isn't
1: it? We need to all look in the mirror. So I don't like to point fingers at any one particular group and say it's all their fault. Like, oh, it's the agriculture people, oh, it's the people that have bad septic systems, it's this, that. You know, people that residentially put fertilize their lawn at the wrong time of year when they're not supposed to. There are many, many different ways that nutrients are getting into the environment. And we're all, as you say, we are all responsible. And there's something, even at the single person level, if we all just try a little harder at keeping the environment cleaner, it will help. It will pay off. And that can be as simple as following when your county says there's a fertilizer ban because it's the rainy season and you don't want your excess fertilizer from your lawn or your plants or your landscape to get into the environment. Follow it. Don't do it. Or don't. Try to plant um, your yard with uh, species that don't require fertilizer. You know, there's many, many things people can do um, and it all counts. Well, it's uh, one of the things about
0: tropical waters typically and the ocean environment near the equator is there are no l- low nutrient environments typically. Uh, big alg- wow. algal blooms, and the reason the whales go to the Arctic is because that's where the plankton is, and the phytoplankton and the krill, mm-hmm. because of the nutrient cycle that operates in the northern latitudes. It's and in, in from it's the, deep the uh, ocean. Right, and you get into these you know latitudes around Florida, and most of the time the water is crystal clear because there's not a lot of nutrient. It, nutrients. Right, in the, blue water right. is essentially
1: dead water. Right. <laughs> <Many times.
0: laughs> so we're changing that, and and what yeah. I what I. Learned was you've been named to Governor DeSantis's uh, uh, is it the Blue Green Algae Task Force? Is yes. that what it is? Yes. And you're serving on another body. Tell us about your your involvement in uh, Governor DeSantis's program to try to get a handle on this problem.
1: Well, I think you know, as we alluded to earlier, I think we're hitting a tipping point where there's been enough economic damage and environmental damage and potentially human health impacts that the state and the federal government, for that matter, are starting to be a lot more proactive. So we've hit that point, and our our governor, um, thanks to him, he's he's pretty forward thinking, is like, okay, we need to get science-based decisions going. We need to involve scientists who understand this problem to try to guide policy, new regulations, and potentially mitigation. How do we, you know, if we're going to have to live with it, can we actually clean it up with technology? Is there something we can do? So he started that and he picked um, five scientists from around the state representing different expertise uh, to deal with this problem and to review basically everything we can from nutrient sources at different nutrient pools that are getting into the environment, what regulations are on them currently, what regulations may be needed in the future, all the way to um, storm management and that kind of water runoff. And we're about to deal with the human health impacts, you know, what we know so far and what we need to know.
0: Well, that's such a, that was an eye-opening uh, part of your talk for me. Uh, I, I'm well aware, just looking at the newspaper, about the economic impacts of, of red tide or harmful algal blooms as a general category. It, it's devastated a lot of the tourism economy in 2018. This was a a major, major bloom year for Florida, I guess, the worst ever, uh, can we say? I mean, Probably that, up that, there,
1: yeah.
0: And, you know, that gets the attention of policymakers because uh, we all want the environment to be clean, but uh, especially in a state that is conservative politically, where the exercise of government regulatory power is not the favored way to go, uh, sometimes you get put in the position where we have got to do something about this because the consequence for... Our citizens and our economy are so apparent. And this is what I like about what DeSantis has done. He brought together the smart people, thank God, went to some scientists and said, listen, tell us what we need to do. Let's see what we can figure out. I'm curious, did he speak to your group at any point? And have you had contact with the governor?
1: So I actually haven't. I went with the governor um, on an overseas trip. Uh, with uh, the head, the Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection. Um, so I have had direct contact with the Governor. He has not directly spoken to the task Force, in other words, got us in a room and said something. the task Force, it uh, has to be done in what's called Florida sunshine, which means every time we talk has to be, as a group has to be seen publicly. So he has a busy schedule. It's not easy to get him in right. room in front of people. Uh, however, um, Noah Valenstein, the um, secretary of the Department of Environment, Florida's Department of Environmental Protection, has and does routinely – um, address us. So he's the right-hand environmental person of the governor. Right. The governor also uh, created a position of the chief science officer for the state of Florida, yeah. Dr. Tom Frazier. Dr. Frazier actually acts as the chair of blue Task Force. So we get to interact uh, with him every time we meet as well. So the communication lines directly to the governor are there whether we have to speak to him directly. Right. That's not really required.
0: Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, that's an, that was a phenomenal move. I've been pretty impressed watching what's happening in Florida, uh, in, uh, you know, climate change is a tough, tough topic in the political universe that we're in right now in America particularly. And, uh, if you're putting that kind of, uh, those kind of people into those positions, it's an acknowledgement that we know this is, uh, something we need to contend with. Uh, it's, it's we're past the denial point. And I think, uh, it's not surprising to me that Florida is one of the states that's doing it because the consequences and uh, are most vivid right now in this state. We're I on
1: the front line. You're the front line. We're the front lines of a number of different issues. Sea level rise, I mean, yeah. Florida, most of South Florida is about 20 feet above sea level at its highest point. So, yeah. uh, you know, more extreme events with hurricanes instead of seeing a Cat 3, maybe it's a Cat 5 now. This right. is a big issue for coastal resiliency. Um, Warming temperatures, uh, we're seeing that as well and the effect that can have on harmful algal blooms, as we discussed. Obviously, for the harmful algal bloom problem, Florida is probably the most impacted state in the United States right now. Wow. So, I mean, all these kind of environmental issues, Florida is it. We're going to fight – probably have to fight this first of all the the other states. And I, I mean I look at it like we can lead the way with the technology and the science to deal with this problem well i you mentioned in your talk that you have created at uh, Florida Atlantic
0: University and at Harbor Branch the Florida Center mm-hmm. for Coastal and Human health mm-hmm. which which is an interesting combination of issues to put together and this was I want to get to this and I want to talk about what could be done, but before we dive into potential solutions, this is something I was not keenly aware of is the health effects mm-hmm. um, had a general notion. I was I worked on Minnesota Key in twenty seventeen and eighteen and was at the beach and had a beach house. We were working on a project and really had to leave. I mean the, 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 the respiratory, respiratory for, yeah the respiratory affected me. So I'm not unfamiliar with this can have health effects, but what you talked about today really caught my attention. Tell us about what you think are the potential health effects of these uh, harmful algal blooms.
1: So there are, as I believe we um, spoke about a little bit, there are many, many species of algae or phytoplankton um, that can create harmful algal blooms. For the ones that actually produce toxins, that means there's also potentially many, many different types of toxins, and they're all going to have a different potentially health effect on humans from paralytic poisoning, neurotoxic poisoning, amnesic poisoning, diuretic poisoning and hepatic poisoning, which is your liver, um, that blue-green algae um, make, or especially uh, the one that occurs in Florida most often, microcystis makes microcystin, which is a really dangerous hepatotoxin. It will cause liver failure in animals and humans that are exposed to a high enough dose. The issue, uh, so we have all these different toxins and all the different things it can do to you. Red Tide, Karenia Brevis, uh, Florida's Red Tide, produces brevitoxin, which is a neurotoxin. Now, the response you said you had is you were coughing. I mean, that's not your brain being hurt. You're just having a respiratory effect from it. That's the acute exposure you felt, and your body's trying to save you from exposure to a dangerous chemical. You're having an adverse acute response, which is telling you, get away. What did you do? Yeah, we left. You got away. really did. So your body saved itself. So... And most times our bodies will save us from an acute dangerous exposure. You'll, mm. you'll start to feel sick. Something will happen and you'll go to the hospital or get away. The issue in Florida and around the world and our, our nation is as these blooms become really common and, you know, they're year after year and people are exposed to them. What happens from chronic low-level non-lethal exposure? This is just like back in the day with uh, lead arsenic Mm -hmm. mercury there's a lot of environmental toxins that don't necessarily kill you right away but if you're chronically exposed to them and you get that year after year it may have a significant health effect for instance if you're exposed to a neurotoxin like brevitoxin year after year what is that doing to your brain chemistry you know could that create some long-term problem that we don't know about the issue is um really for scientists is we don't have the studies required to understand if there is any real danger or risk to this chronic low-level exposure. Interesting. And lots of people are getting this. I mean, on the west coast of Florida, red tides becoming more common, unfortunately, and the people that, you know, live in some of the best places in the world right on the beach, they're exposed to it potentially almost every summer. Yeah. What is that doing to them? I and when people ask me that, I give talks like I gave today. I can't answer them. Because I don't know.
0: And thus the Florida Center for Coastal and Human Health. Yes. Is that one of the agenda? is, and, and you were talking about the lack of funding and the need to really get serious about chronic exposure to these uh, mm. toxins related to harmful algal blooms. And, you know, there's a lot of people in this country with a lot of money, Bill Gates and all these people. Can somebody can some of you people out there just drop 10 or 20 million dollars on this center so these guys can do the work? I mean, this is serious business. And and the prognosis for the uh, the the future is not particularly good. It is likely that this is going to continue to occur yes. and continue to occur in, in greater frequency. And It's you know, probably
1: going to get, it's getting worse before it'll get better.
0: Right. So you've got to get smart about it. And, and uh, because it's just basic public health policy. And it, this is what surprised me about this is I hadn't really thought about the health impacts as a driving force for the investigation and, and the regulation of this. I kind of thought, well, the economic down out, Down, uh, you know, downside is so big. That's 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 what you need to worry
1: about. But it's really this health effect. Well, we need to worry about all of it. Yeah. I mean, mean, if you're if you're running a business and you know your business fails because of harmful algal blooms, you care about that. But I mean, I live here. I have a family here. Um, I want to know. And I, unfortunately, work around because I study harmful (laughs) algal (laughs) blooms. I work around them a lot. I've been exposed. Uh, probably more than your general public to unfollow the blooms I'd like to know whether or not I am actually in any risk just for my occupation what right. I do Yeah. but there are plenty of fishermen out there there are plenty of people who work in marinas and, and work around you know the, the coastal environment or work in lakes like Lake Okeechobee it's like what is that doing to them what's it doing to their families I hope nothing I mean ultimately I'd like yeah. a study to say no there's no real risk it's, it's minuscule and it could be that I'm not saying it, it's doom and gloom yeah. What I'd like to actually know as a scientist what it is. Yeah, and
0: answer. We do want the right an We want the right outcome here, but there's a, you know over in Austin, Texas where I live in in, uh, in Town Lake it's called, that uh, we've had harmful algal blooms in the city this summer and several dogs have been have died yeah. uh, and they've closed the parks, they've closed the lake to animals because it's fairly toxic. So you know, we're, we're, we're not that different from dogs physiologically. No. Uh, so if it's killing these animals, there's reason for concern here.
1: There is. And, you know, when – and this is becoming, uh, you know, very unfortunately a more common thing where dogs are paying the price for harmful algal blooms. People, you know, they have a small lake or a pond or whatever and they just go down and their dog wants to frolic in the water and sure. the dog gets an, an acute lethal exposure to – and usually it's blue-green algae. It's almost always blue-green algae that are in fresh water. Um, that's really unfortunate, but as you say, okay, before it got to the point that it was killing dogs, yeah, dogs were still going into it. And so were people before they closed it. There was just a lower level of blue green algae there, but the toxins were probably there and, you know, and it's like, okay, again, you got a chronic, maybe potentially a chronic exposure every year from going to that lake before it got to the point that it was a harmful algal bloom where they noticed it and closed it down. You know, did that have any effect on you or your dog? Yeah, you don't know, right? And
0: and that's the reason for the center and the necessity of the intense investigation that should be going on. It let me, and I think on one of the slides you had, the CDC was a partner in some of your work. Is that true? They are. So this should be a CDC <clears throat> matter. Damn it! This is a good, straightforward public health investigation that CDC is known for.
1: So they actually, during 2018, we had a, a pretty extreme um, blue-green algal. Um, harmful algal bloom in our local counties down here, originating from local Lake Okeechobee. Uh, and we, knowing that, hey, we have the center, we need to start collecting. This data is incredibly valuable. I mean, how are people being exposed right now? It's going on. And there's people that live and work on the water in, in, with this algae. Right. We need to start collecting this data. I realize it's an emergency. We have to do this right away. So we started taking blood, urine, and nasal swab samples from the population that was recreationally or occupationally exposed to these blooms because wow. we want to collect this data. We could process the nasal swab samples in-house, and we did. But the blood and the urine samples, we have sent to the CDC for analysis because um, getting doing analysis on those body, bodily fluids for toxins is actually fairly complex, yeah. and the CDC set up to do it. Right. So as far as I know… Um, they have already processed the urine samples, but they're still trying to develop the, the, the procedure for testing blood for microcystin. But that kind of tells you our own CDC yeah. doesn't even know yeah, it doesn't how have, to do it. it. doesn't have the protocols in Which place yet. Which we means we haven't been studying it. We're blind, yeah. essentially. So, But they are working with us, um, and I, I believe the CDC, um, if I remember right, actually announced that they were going to try to do some form of study around the population um, of Lake Okeechobee. So they yeah. were going to start as well, which we are also trying to do.
0: Sounds so. like a good idea. I wanted to – there was a slide. There was many slides in your presentation that <laughs> what are you had, saying? Me, had me <laughs> drop <laughs> my jaw a little bit and go, wow, really? That's that. Uh, is this correlation causation question when it comes to mm-hmm. liver uh, exposure and, and potential liver disease mm-hmm. and uh, you know this is a this is a very comfortable subject and distinction in the scientific community there's there's correlation which means things are happening two different things are happening sort of at the same time mm-hmm. and causation meaning there's actually a One Uh, is affecting the other. One is affecting the other. (laughs) One is contributing, making it happen. And you were very careful in your talk about this, but... But because we don't have the science. No, and I don't want to raise
1: yeah. an alarm that, you know, I don't want to be seen as a fear monger, yeah. even though you have to kind of scare people to get action sometimes. Well, I, I think we can talk
0: about correlation, and our audience will understand we are not postulating here that there is a direct relationship or any relationship, in fact, to these toxins and this uh, disease. But tell us what's been reported. What's the science starting? To, what is the the data starting to show? Well,
1: I mean, we know... Uh, blue Green Algae make this toxin called microcystin, um, and there's various forms of microcystin, so I'll just I'll leave it at that. But we know it's a liver toxin and can cause liver failure in mammals and, and higher animals uh, like humans. Um, and that's been proven. We have a number of dogs who have died recently from exposure in Florida um, and now North Carolina, you just said, down in your neck of the woods. In, in Austin. Austin it happened. And papers, scientific papers have been published on this. They do autopsies on the dogs. They look at their livers and say, yep, it's liver failure and, it, and the toxins present in the dog. So that's, yeah. you know, that's not no longer correlation causation. That's pretty much causation. You know, one yeah. one thing caused the other one. <clears throat> with an apparently totally healthy dog that went into a, a blue-green algal lake and then died days later. Right. The lethality is quite surprisingly so, fast Oh, mean We know that, and, and, and actually back, um, I believe, in the late 70s or early 80s, um, microcystin, they were drawing water for a hospital, um, and it got into uh, a hospital's water system, and I believe uh, like 20 or more dialysis patients died from liver failure because microcystin accidentally got into their treatment stream. So treatment in treatment. the fresh water stream they were using because wow. the water was not treated. So we do have direct human, you know, proof that humans have died from this, but that was through a procedure. That was not just environmental exposure. That was a different thing. We've had um, you know, microcystin get into drinking water before the Toledo water crisis back uh about 6-7 years ago. The whole city of Toledo had to shut down because the treatment Facility to get rid of microcystin out of the drinking water from Lake Erie um, didn't work correctly. So they found microcystin in microcystin in the drinking water for a you know million plus. And that's not so the animal;
0: that's the toxic chemical they this produce. This is the toxin right?
1: that the algae actually um, yeah produces. So, I mean, we know what it does. What we don't know is if you don't get that acute lethal exposure what does the low-level you know, damage to your liver add up to be? Right. Now, there, are, there have been studies. A study was done by a, a group of, um, I believe Zhang was the uh, lead author, who looked at a correlation nationwide throughout the whole United States between non-alcoholic liver disease. So that would be, hmm. you know, we can explain cirrhosis and things like that. We know what caused that. But for non-alcoholic liver disease, death from non-alcoholic liver disease correlated to um, these blue-green algal blooms in the United States. Florida, only four counties showed up um, that showed this cluster of deaths from non-alcoholic liver disease and these uh, harmful algal blooms. All coastal? They were on the Treasure Coast of Florida, right where um, the blooms of microcystis are, come from the discharge water of Lake Okeechobee. Wow. Uh, they found clusters around Lake Erie. They found clusters around San Francisco Bay, which also has a blue-green algal problem. So the places that we know where this isn't a potential issue... They found these clusters. But, again, that's correlation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. not causation. Yeah,
0: we're not trying to be alarmists here. But I think what it does uh, argue for at this point is is a more intensive investigation of this health effect. Exactly. And the reason why your center is being formed and the reason why that needs to get funded uh, is – but let's talk, let's talk about Okeechobee because it comes up a lot in the press, and there's kind of a raging debate about about what's been going on with Lake Okeechobee. Uh, uh, You'd have to like for our listeners around the country. Uh, kind of introduce them to the lake how what it's used for who manages it and what's happening in the lake and where does the water from the lake end up that kind of thing Tell, give us a landscape picture say,
1: well Lake Okeechobee is the largest water body in, in fresh water body in Florida it's like dead center of uh, the state of Florida on the peninsula um, it's kind of like a mini Great lake it's it's extensive when you go to the banks of Lake Okeechobee you cannot see the other side okay <laughs> so it's like a little inland ocean Um, It's not a deep lake. It's, uh, I believe, about 20, 25 feet deep at its deepest point, so um, it easily mixes. Uh, It's surrounded by um, a natural earthen dike, which uh, holds back its water. Um, There's a lot of communities around it and agricultural fields and the agricultural effort, especially north of the lake, um, feeds uh, quite a bit of nutrient pollution into the lake. I, I believe somewhere between 70 and eight percent of the excess nutrients that get into Lake Okeechobee source from the agricultural input. Okay. Um, so that's one area where ag is probably a, a bigger contributor than, uh, say, septic systems or things like that. And the big issue with the lake, um, you know, it's got a lot of excess nutrients in it now, and it's starting to get recurrent blooms of blue-green algae and potentially harmful ones. So not all blue-green algae are harmful, but um, microcystis is the causative organism. It's the same organism that blooms in Lake Erie um, and around the world right now that produces this liver toxin. So we get these recurrent big blooms in the lake. They, they happen pretty consistently. Some years they're worse than others, depending on environmental conditions and, and runoff and such. Um, but because Lake Okeechobee is, has an earthen dike around it and it has a, a large number of people that live around it, the Corps of Engineers manages the lake level. Because if the lake gets too high and the dike gets breached – it could cause, you know, kill people. It'll, it'll flood these lands and potentially, you know, be a, a disaster for the people that live around the lake. So the Corps has to discharge water out of Lake Okeechobee. And right now, the discharges go to the east and west coasts of Florida. Right. Now, think about in the summertime, that's our rainy season. If the lake level gets too high, they have to discharge. In the summertime is when we also have these blue-green algal blooms. So now they're taking water, potentially that's laden with blue-green algae. It's a harmful algal bloom, and they're spreading it to both coasts. Right. Once it gets into these estuaries, these coastal areas, it can actually persist. Now, it's a freshwater algae, so you'd think, oh, it hits salt water, it dies. It lyses, it, it explodes mm. because of the right. osmotic difference. Gotcha. Microcystis is actually adapted to fairly high salinity. It can exist up to about 15 parts per thousand, which Damn, for nasty, someone who doesn't, doesn't know oceanography or the, the ocean, that's about half the strength of seawater, the salt that's in seawater. And in estuaries... That's kind of the salinity you get. So these things can actually grow and persist in a saltwater, a semi-saltwater environment. Wow. And these estuaries, unfortunately, are where there are a lot of people. There is a lot of business. There's a lot of recreation. This is where people fish. This is where some of the most expensive real estate in Florida exists. (laughs) Um, So now when they discharge and the algae takes hold and can start to grow in these estuaries, it can persist there for the entire summer. And yeah. now the the bloom that was restricted to Lake Okeechobee is now spread around the coastal. And these discharges from
0: the lake and it. it uh, lake Okeechobee is an artificially created I guess it was a natural lake at one right, time but it's it been expanded s- by the Substantially larger forties. And then there's canals, these this discharge uh, routes wow. are are managed canal systems that were constructed. One dumps into Indian River Lagoon, right? Is that right.
1: So it? there's Canal Forty Four, which leads to the St. Lucie River, which mm. leads to the, the St. Lucie estuary, which is part of the Indian River Lagoon.
0: On the Atlantic side.
1: On the on the western side it goes to the Caloosahatchee River, okay. which goes into like the Fort Myers um, area up in there. Okay,
0: so one thing that happened this year, last year in 2018, the algal blooms along the coast, southeast side, even on the Atlantic side, were notable. Uh, this year, the Corps decides to, uh, to make no discharges from Lake
1: Okeechobee this year. Summer. They didn't, tell, tell. They didn't decide not to do discharges. They didn't have to do discharge. Oh, okay. So the reason for that is normally I believe they keep the lake level somewhere around they they always discharge before the rainy season. So and that's usually before the bloom has started. So the water is relatively benign. And the, a lot of nutrients and the raining season is what? Uh, kind of starts in March, okay. April. So in the winter, they'll be right. lowering somewhere the level. Somewhere in January, February, maybe beginning of March, they'll be discharging to lower the lake level from the previous year. Got it. And uh, traditionally, they drop it down to somewhere around 13 and a half, 13, maybe 12 and a half feet. This year, before the rainy season, they dropped the lake all the way down to 10 and a half feet. So they substantially lowered the lake mm-hmm. level. Well, what did that do? That allowed when we had our normal rainy season this year, which was an average year, we haven't had a major hurricane or which would, you know, change it. Right. Um, the lake level is now around 14 and a half, almost 15 feet. Anything above like 15, 15 and a half feet is where regulatory they got to start discharging because uh-huh. the dike can't take water higher than that. So they they got it low enough that they did not have to conduct the normal discharges that they would do.
0: They created enough capacity space to in the take lake.
1: in the rain um, yeah. and the the algae is out there. It bloomed this year. It wasn't as severe as last year, um, but thankfully they have not had to do any discharges. Now that may not continue if we have just one good tropical storm. That's going to push the lake up to above fifteen feet and yeah. it'll start discharging. But so, so far, cross your fingers, has not happened. Uh, it it it
0: it's kind of going to feed. It. This is going to be an issue in the task force, I would assume. Yes, uh, the Corps of engineers. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed to hear that they didn't decide to do it. They simply made it. They're, 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 the, the circumstance didn't demand it.
1: Uh, but believe, that, well, what they did. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, so if I say something that's uh, legally incorrect, uh, I apologize. But from what I understand, um, the agricultural. Uh, interest south of the lake which is uh, the sugar industry has sued the Corps of Engineers for dropping the lake too low because they use it for irrigation. Irrigation. Yeah. So they're almost, they have to back pump into the lake instead of drawing from the lake. But because the core did that, I believe they sued them for doing it. So, so this I don't is, know where that is,
0: ended up. This is why you need a task force. <laughs> why solving these problems is difficult because you've got multiple interests and stakeholders with different outcomes desired. And this is the job of governing. But as a scientist, let me ask you this. I mean, scientists design experiments all the time to test hypotheses and, and here you go you've got to be, here we have essentially one of the grandest landscape scale scientific experiments that can be conducted in America which is to to look at the relationship between discharges from Lake Okeechobee and harmful algal blooms on the coast and they're sort of turning it off and turning it on and if they do that often enough it's going to help you guys understand what the contributing uh, factor is from the I mean, this is a grand experiment i'd say you hate to see it because it's it affecting people's lives but this is really a, a great experiment scientifically
1: well and we kind of learned one thing so I, we were very interested as scientists of how much of the blooms that occur in the estuary in the, the waters that are low enough salinity to allow the microcystis to grow how much originated locally versus came from the lake right so this year, we were down there looking, okay, will we see any naturally occurring bloom? Now, we did see some, so a very small amount, but nothing that approached a really harmful level. So, okay. there was a measurable toxin, but not above any World Health Organization um, you know, guidelines for what would be a recreational closure. Um, but that kind of answered that question that, man, eh, it probably originates from the lake.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, I hope that the Corps of Engineers, I know they have statutory guidance which tells them how to manage the lake and they have all kinds of agreements and things they have to do. Or we
1: may talk. we'll probably talk about it in the task force. Now. Uh,
0: I would think. So uh, tell us so this is my question. That you, how long have you been on the task force and looking down the road, what tools do you have to work with
1: So I've been in the task force, I believe it started getting organized and, you know, basically the beginning of the year and we started meeting March or April, somewhere around there. Um, and the task force is theoretically supposed to go for five years. So this is the very early part of it. What we have at our disposal, the first thing we've spent most of our time on, we're entering our fourth and fifth meeting next week. Actually, we're doubling up on meetings. Um, is to review the current state of the science. So as scientists, we have to say, you know, we're not all experts in everything. So we need to be educated, which is great. I mean, I I want to learn this. Um, So we've got educated on where the nutrient sources are, what those sources are coming from, what the basin management action plans are, what are the daily loads that are allowed by regulation. I mean, there's many, many things to learn. Once we get through that education period, then we start to think about, okay, what regulations are being enforced or not being enforced, what regulations need to be enforced better, what new regulations should be adopted, like potentially lowering the lake level every year, um, somewhere down there, Um, and then eventually developing new policy. So, you know, new regulations or new state policy for, you know, controlling nutrient input into the watersheds
0: well that's going to be a big job and it you know i Five years. yeah i appreciate that it does begin with study and that, because there's a lot of times when there's so much economic consequence to the success or failure of the measures the state is going to take ultimately in response to this that you know if things don't go the way people want uh we tend to mistrust everyone gee that meant that they, somebody must have been you know in cahoots and there's all of this <laughs> yes. business And which is very destructive to the to the seriousness of the work and the seriousness of the people involved. This and and I think to the governor too. This is a this is a sincere and difficult effort and a very difficult job that's going to take a lot of brain power and a whole lot of political skill. Um, And you know, I hope that people give it a chance. Uh, It's already a little bit more political than I've. That I think is good.
1: I think you know, people if they see positive action and they they just you know, people are going to want to see us make a difference. So hopefully they'll get that. You know, and I should note that I think a good thing that the governor did is we're operating under what's called the Florida Sunshine Law, which means no one on the task force can talk to each other unless the public is there. Right. So everything we do, every word we say is recorded. You can find it on the internet after our meetings. Every meeting, everything we do is transparent and open to the public. So there are no backdoor meetings. Um, we don't, you know, get together and discuss what we're going to say prior to doing it. We can't even email each other. We can't do any of that. Everything we do is recorded and available. That's great. Um, so there should be transparency for the public. But ultimately, the public's going to want to see us take action or, or, you know, we're not a regulatory body. We can't actually go out and start enforcing anything, but that we give the best recommendations we can to the regulatory agencies right. EP and uh, other Department of Health others um, to deal with this problem and, and from what I've seen, having now talked to a lot of leaders of these agencies, they want to do this. There is not this oh my god, these scientists and no. heads are coming in and they're going to tell us how to do our job. It is not that at all. Mm-hmm. It is tell us how to deal with this problem right They are open they are sincere and i I really do think it will make a difference
0: that's fantastic ladies and gentlemen dr james sullivan executive director of the harbor branch oceanographic institute at florida atlantic university i really appreciate you being on the uh, american shoreline podcast and joining us uh, from the florida shore and beach preservation association meeting
1: Uh, closing thoughts uh, dr sullivan um, if any of you win the lottery, our center could really use some funding. <laughs> That's right. I want all those one percenters
0: out there. Now, y'all are looking what can I do that would really be a good legacy for me and my family is to support the uh florida center for coastal we could name it after you we could indeed (laughs) this is important and 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 i'd like to think that all of the money in the world is available to these kinds of things given it's important but that's never true and philanthropic contributions are essential in our society and this is one that needs to be supported so thanks a lot dr sullivan it was a pleasure to talk to you today thank you very much